How's it going? This is Captain Cam with Blackbird Guide Services, and I will be your host for today's episode of Eastern Current. And today, our guest is Jocko Lucas, who is a legendary fly fisherman, guide, world traveler, you name it, he's probably caught it. Uh, so we're going to talk to him about all of the travels he's been through, how he started, and, and, and where he is now. So stay tuned, and... Uh, Hope you enjoy this one. If I'm fishing a jig, you can bet it's going to be an iStrike Texas Eye. Dave and Ralph at iStrike have built the most versatile and durable lineup of jigs in the saltwater industry. Whether you need a finesse presentation on spooky wintertime redfish, or you need to hop a big swim bait on deep water structure for cobia and bull redfish, iStrike has the jig for you. Be sure to check out their website and use code EC10 for up to 40% off all iStrike products and 10% off all Z-Man products. The code can only be used at iStrikeFishing.com and you can find the code and the link to their website in the podcast show notes. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Eastern Current on Patreon. There you'll be able to find our weekly Ramp Talk podcast where my guide buddies and I discuss our day-to-day fishing on the way to the boat ramp in the morning. You will also be able to find extra video content that you can't find on YouTube. If you've loved listening to the Eastern Current Podcast, subscribing to our Patreon is a great way to help support the show. Captain Jocko, how's it going, man? Doing yourself, Cameron. Uh, thank you so much uh, for, for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's believe me, the pleasure is mine. You're the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> Uh, I don't know about that much, but yeah, no, I appreciate it. Uh, well, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on because I've been a big fan of yours for a long time and I've kind of lived vicariously, I guess you could say through a lot of your travels and in the films that you produce or just, this all looks very top notch and all, you know, just incredible adventures and that's definitely something that I want to I want to get into on this podcast for sure. But I did want to start off with you know how did the addiction to fly fishing come about and where you know just about your about your childhood growing up I believe in in South Africa, right? Um Yes, yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So, you know, maybe just go into your childhood and growing up and, and then where, where the fishing addiction started. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, like I said, born and raised in South Africa. Um, I was born in Johannesburg, uh, which is quite a long way from the coastline, but uh, uh, a part of my dad's family uh, is from Cape Town. So, um, I mean, my dad started fishing. Uh, uh, it's a method we call rock and surf fishing where you, have these 14-foot big rods and big reels, and then you cast these giant baits into the surf, and then you basically try and catch the biggest fish you possibly can, which usually would be big sharks and stingrays. Um, and I really love that. I still, I mean, I still really do enjoy it. Um, but uh, sort of around the last year of primary school, around 12, there was a TV show um, on our sort of sports television in South Africa, which had a little show highlighting yellow fishing on the Vol River in, in, in South Africa. I mean, at that stage, I knew that we had trout, and a lot of the a lot of the trout, <laughs> contrary to popular belief, we actually had some pretty cool trout in in Africa. Um, but uh, usually, the majority of the trout fishing is sort of stocked lakes um, and all that kind of stuff. But 
this yellow fishing just uh, seemed pretty awesome because it was a native fish that we would fish for. Um, and you can sort of, there's various ways that you can target them. And uh, I kind of immediately just went to the shop. Um, I had a great family. My mom gave me a, a couple hundred rand and uh, managed to go buy very, very inexpensive fly fishing kits. And then kind of just like with most people kind of went from there and kind of taught myself how to cast horribly, but I <laughs> was able to get it in front of some fish. So yeah. yeah. And then, uh, and then it kind of just developed from there and, you know, I think once you kind of get that real rush of catching a fish on a fly rod and that really intimate moment on casting a fly at a, uh, at a fish, then it kind of changes the game a little bit. Um, and definitely, I, I always say, like, when we decide to become fly fishermen, we just kind of decide to make fishing as difficult as we can for ourselves. <laughs> That's the truth. That's the truth. And, and um, I've, I've made this metaphor before, but it, I relate it to, like, fly fishing is like bow hunting. Where in in conventional fishing or spin fishing is kind of like rifle hunting. I mean, you're just you're making it a lot harder on yourself, but it also takes you know a lot of skill and a lot of practice. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's that's and and you know, like it is kind of nice. You know, there's this whole whole stigma around that fly fishing are pretty elitist and, and all that stuff. And I think in some cases we are guilty of it. But you know, like there's there's definitely things that we can sometimes learn from fishing, uh, conventional fishing and bait fishing and spinner fishing where you, I mean, everything that I learned from reading water to, uh, to uh, temperature and all that stuff kind of still relates back to conventional fishing. So there's a lot to be learned and no reason to kind of be uh, very elitist, but um, it is pretty awesome to catch a fish on a fly. Yeah, there's no doubt. There's nothing like it. Yeah. So growing up in, in South Africa, where's, I mean, there's got to be a ton, a ton of, of fishing opportunity there. When you were growing up, were you traveling around at, at any point looking for, you know, specific species or was it kind of all just around, you know, where you grew up and, and where your family was and, and that kind of led you to, you know, traveling the world? Yeah, so so there, there is some really good fishing in South Africa um, and, and fly fishing opportunities there. The only thing is, is so let's say, for example, like fly, uh, saltwater fishing, which is kind of more of the stuff that I did from a conventional point of view. Um, the saltwater fishing can be pretty tough, although there are places in South Africa that you can um, potentially catch a, a GT or as the South Africans call them, kingfish um, uh, on fly in the surf. But, you know, a lot of that takes even even like we've got a fish called the grunter, which is kind of considered as like our South African permit, which it's a tailing fish. You get them in these estuary systems and they, they're really finicky and the guys are really getting them dialed more and more. But it, it's still a lot of the fly fishing requires a lot of commitment and a lot of hard work. I mean, there's a, there are some guys that are, there's some South African fly fishermen that are absolutely insane when it comes to just commitment, fishing whatever time of the day, whatever time of the night, um, and really just grind it out and get smashed around and still um, and still catch nothing. So <laughs> there, there, there is a lot of opportunities, but I would say that they're really, really hard. From a freshwater point of view, the yellowfish is actually very uh, widely spread and a very cool fish to fish for. Um, there's a, there's a, a, it's, it's, it's kind of strange. It's a country within South Africa called Lesotho, and um, there you can, uh, you can also find these very crystal clear. We call it the Patagonia of Africa with high mountainous, um, uh, rivers and you can catch yellowfish and actually some really nice brown and rainbow trout in there too. Wow. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely, and, and the yellowfish, there's actually seven different species. I'm saying correct, I 
kind of remember seven different species of yellowfish, small scale, large scale, and then the main ones that everybody fished for is the smallmouth and largemouth, and then there's three other um, sort of clan William and other species, which if you mention to any big yellow fisherman that they look like a carp, they'll immediately um, get very angry at you, but <laughs> they are amazing fish. You can catch them. The, the largemouth yellowfish resembles a fish called the marstia. You can catch in India, and they are much more predatory. You can catch them on streamer patterns and sort of bigger flies, and then the the smallmouth yellowfish, you can catch them nymphing dry flies. I've had some absolutely insane dry fly sessions in South Africa fishing for the smallmouth yellowfish. So, so yeah, I mean, we, we, we kind of very spoiled. And then there's one fish that's kind of, every time I mention to somebody, a fish you'd imagine come from Africa um, is, a, is a tiger fish, which is these te- fish with these insane big teeth and, um, and very aggressive. And, uh, yeah, they're kind of just the epitome of Africa. And we're also lucky to have them in South Africa, but also on the bordering countries and in Africa, which is super, super cool to fish for. Oh, man, I actually just watched your your film on YouTube on the tiger fish. And yeah, I mean, you're right. That is like the fish of Africa. If I had to imagine a fish in Africa, that's what I would picture. They are really, no, definitely, really, really they, cool fish. They, I would definitely say pound for pound that they're the hardest hitting freshwater fish for me that I've hooked on the planet. On the planet. So, I mean... Um, you're usually fishing sinking lines or um, now, like, I wouldn't say the newest techniques, but techniques, but the newer techniques is where the guys skate flies across the surface and you've got these big fish, especially um, these friends of mine that have got a company called African Waters and they've kind of pioneered the, I would say, kind of the majority of African fisheries or a, a, a huge amount of them. Um, and they've got this uh, operation that they run in in Tanzania and the, 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 the fish, I would say that's the biggest consistent, uh, well, like species of tiger fish that you can catch anywhere on fly. And those things like 20 up to potentially 28, 30 pounds, um, can come up and smash a dry fly. And I promise you, everybody's fingers are getting burnt. Like it doesn't matter if you've got finger, like little finger condoms or all those things that we (laughs) use to strip, they, they destroy you. So very, very cool fish. That's awesome. I've never, I've never heard of someone calling them finger condoms. That is great. Um, uh, so, tiger fish in South Africa, and then, so at what point in your in your fishing career did you make the jump to to the Seychelles? Because from from what I understand and what I know about you, is that. You were, you know, born and raised in South Africa, and then you transitioned into like a guiding job in in the Seychelles. Is that, you know, is it it was it as easy as that, or was it there a lot of you know beforehand stuff? Um, no, I mean that's basically the long story, kind of short. I uh, I, um, I I did uh, I was I, I met a guy very randomly in South Africa, a guy called Keith Rosinus, which is kind of the the main guy in the Seychelles now that runs most of the, 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 the islands and the outfitters there, outfitting company that, that runs basically most of the islands there. And I met him randomly, um, on a, in a coastal town on a beach. And, uh, he, uh, he had just finished the season in Russia. Um, so you can imagine what somebody, he kind of looked a little bit beaten up from a whole season in Russia, guiding 24 hours a day and drinking vodka. So, um, yeah. But as soon as he explained to me that he was a fishing guide and he was doing it for a living, I was absolutely amazed. And he, he at that stage, he started doing some work in the Seychelles and taking some of his clients over there. 
Um, and then, like, I just kind of followed in his footsteps. I, I finished my degree. I went to go work at this shop called Farlow's in London, which is a super old fly fishing store, um, really cool traditional store. And then um, and then I literally, after a year, I kind of um, got a message out to him and asked him for a job. And, like, three weeks later, I was guiding in Cosmolito and the Seychelles, which is pretty wild. I did a little bit of guiding before then, sort of around and some tiger fish and some yellow fish. But uh, this was... Uh, like kind of fell with my my uh, just in in the holy grail of everything and but yeah it's just insane you got spoiled right from the start yeah i mean those places i mean you know we we definitely do have a little bit of a footprint on most of those atolls now that we've been guiding on them for nearly for most of them nearly two decades so I mean, they do have a little bit of a footprint, but definitely those early days were, were pretty wild. I mean, you can just imagine so few people, or if any, have put their foot on any of those flats. So, I mean, our first week we landed 373 GTs for the week. Um, and all I, I was basically not guiding because we got given clients and they just go say, go find fish, which was kind of easier in the Seychelles. <laughs> However, um, uh, I mean, it was just, it was just mayhem. I would just kind of end up landing fish rather than actually actively guiding somebody <laughs> sounds like the perfect guiding job to me um, yes i mean it, it it was definitely awesome and and the kind of the unique thing is is you know it, it was tough but the first few years um you know again social media definitely paints a big highlight reel in in all of our lives um but but i, I mean i spent probably two years guiding this oh, sorry four years guiding the seychelles before picking up a rod so the nice thing at that point though is is um, you get to know all these different species and very well. And also that you, that the one thing I appreciate about that is, is that as I was actually guiding clients within their ability and not my ability. So mm-hmm. a, a lot of lessons learned that I really appreciate all every single moment on the water. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So when you first started guiding in the Seychelles, was it, um, it's my understanding that, that you, it, like as a guest, if you're coming there, uh, that you're staying on the island now, but was it at first everyone stayed on the mothership? Yes. So the early days, um, I think the only at all, there were people able to really um, actively book and fish from the island was Alphonse. That's been around for quite some time. Um, and even in those earlier days, there were uh, a, a couple outfitters that had liverboards that people were fishing there, but um, all the other ones, uh, uh, Cosmolito, Providence, um, Poivre, Farquhar, all those different atolls, um, they, we used to have a liverboard operation. So, I mean, heck, you travel for two, two and a half, three days to get to that point, and then you still have to get to the liverboard, and then you have to sail to where the, the island is, and then you actually start fishing. So, it's a heck of a long way to go. Yeah, yeah, that is wild. So, when, as a guide, were you living on the mothership? when you were guiding there? Yeah, yeah. So um, definitely as much as people would think it's a glamorous job, uh, we were still, I remember um, a good friend of mine in the early days, Ian with keepers of at the, at the same time, uh, a friend of mine called Tim Babbage. We were kind of roommates for most of the early days. And we were, we were the boat then, I mean, that boat actually was pirated after a few years and actually sank. And so at the bottom of the Somalian Bay right now, but that boat we used to call the animal bum and animals bum and it 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 was a working vessel i would say more than anything else i mean it it smelled funny it kind of wasn't super spacious i mean it was it was kind of a very 
very rugged boat, but um, we were we were spending. So I mean, we would guide clients for a whole week, drop one group off um, at the at the kind of runway island where we pick them up, and then just pick up the next guest. And you would do that. Um, uh, so at that stage, we were doing like two, three, four months at a time, and then uh, you would kind of go back, take a break, and then come back again. And uh, you definitely get island fever at some stage. It's uh, it's not as easy as it sounds. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. It's a uh, it's a little bit easier, I'm sure, though, to sleep on a a mothership that smells kind of funny if you're waking up to go fish for GTs and bumfish and permit and <laughs> milkfish. Uh, it just no. seems, it seems like the most amazing place for for fishing. I could I mean you could possibly imagine if I if I f- imagine my heaven, that's what I would like it to look like. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, definitely. I mean, for, for, through all the, the the times where it was a little bit tougher, actually, was just the, from general boat stuff. Like, I mean, I was literally, um, Tim and I were on bunk beds, and he was on the bottom one. I was at the top bunk, and I would literally have the boat septic tank run, like, across from my head. Um, so, definitely, made, probably made me sleep a little bit easier at night. But, uh, um, yeah, no, it was, it was, it's the time. I wouldn't change anything in the world. It's, uh, it's, it's so special, and kind of a pity all the stuff that happened eventually but i mean everything's just back on track and just uh but now with all the most of the places that i think the only atoll now that's being that's being run as a liverboard is uh providence there there is a settlement that's built up on the north island but um but uh, the clients still stay on a liverboard when they fish there the atoll is just so big that it's also just difficult to be at one specific area because i it's a, it's a massive atoll, so you it's nicer with a liverboard where you can kind of move between spots. So interesting. I mean, we could spend probably the next five hours talking about just the the Seychelles and and your time there. But uh, I I know that you have a ton of other experiences that I definitely want to touch on too. But I, I'll say the one thing uh, when I first learned about the Seychelles uh, was in a Yeti video. That came out, God, I don't know, hey, you could probably correct me on this, but maybe like four or five years ago. And, uh, I mean, it showed, it showed you, it showed uh, a handful of the other guides there just, look, you know, catching massive tuna. And, and there's like a video clip of you on the bow, like wrestling a tuna. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, this place is unreal. And these guys are living just the absolute coolest lives um, so if anyone hasn't checked out that video, I would highly recommend it. Cause if, if that video doesn't get you pumped up to go fishing, I don't know what will. Yeah, that definitely kind of became the, the, the sort of the perfect, I, I probably say one of the most watched, one of the most watched fly fishing videos around. I mean, the guys that kind of Yeti and the crew of Tollwag and that whole bunch of filmmakers absolutely did a phenomenal job to kind of compact everything we did within like a two week time frame in like seven minutes. and. Um, I mean that, yeah, it, 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 it was, it was definitely wild. Funnily enough, like, I mean, we had a little bit of a trickier time, um, uh, the earlier part of the week and then everything just unfolded and just went like the fishing just went off. I mean, at, at once, like the, in the last couple of days, even every single camera guy caught a GT. And the one thing also just about the, the Seychelles itself, you know, we always talk about GTs and those aggressive fish, but there is a huge amount of other species to fish for when it's trigger fish barracuda bonefish uh all the different snappers and groupers and it's just i mean you can you can definitely 
talk about the Seychelles for hours and hours. And that's kind of why it's, you know, I mean, it's difficult to get to. It's pretty expensive, but I mean, it is, it is the holy grail of fly fishing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> I do want to, now that you mentioned trigger fish, I, you know, is that one of the only, it can't be one of the only places you can catch them, but every time I see someone that's like caught a trigger fish, they're like, I love these things. What, what is, what is so awesome about trigger fish? You know, basically they definitely still on the top of my list of favorite fish to fish for is, um, I mean, the, the aspect, the main aspect of how visual it is, because you've got these like quirky looking colorful fish in the Seychelles. They're pretty colorful. I mean, I know, um, I have fished for the ones kind of in the Caribbean where they those gray colored uh, trigger fish. Um, they still kind of have the same attitude. You kind of see them sailing around. And, and then uh, even if you make a perfect cast at them and they eventually chase the fly and eat it, then with those teeth that they have, I mean, they can still crunch that, that whole hook into bits. So um, <laughs> even if you've done everything right, it's not a guaranteed still. So, and the other thing is, is like, I think I described them in a, short little film we did uh it's called trigonometry and uh, uh describe them as kind of the homer simpson of fish but you don't expect it like they they kind of look goofy but when you hook them they just kind of run off and they go to the closest piece of coral they can find so they they're pretty deceptive so i mean they've got all the elements of an awesome fish and i'd probably say one of the best trigger fisheries on the planet that i know of is in sudan which is uh african waters these other friends of mine also um do do some some guiding and uh have an outfit out there and it is insane when it comes to triggers i mean we've caught more than we could ever imagine in that place yeah that's really cool that is really cool so it's, it's mainly the challenge of catching them it sounds like um almost like a almost like the allure of like a permit maybe exactly exactly just kind of like this uh just not as pretty i would well i mean with all their colors they definitely have a pretty element to it but i mean uh, Perma definitely has a way to uh, to get the, the knees to shake. And then, we, I mean, we also have that uh, Indo-Pacific Permit in the Seychelles too, which is beautiful gold colors and do kind of the same thing as the normal Permit do. Um, we actually have a film on the, well, the guys from Costa did a film um, called Four of a Kind, which is this um, new kind of uh, way that we kind of trying to target four different species of Permit around the world, um, which is pretty awesome. And it's funny these all these different permits are still permit but they have their kind of unique little elements environments and how they feed so it's a very cool that is really cool um well before we move on just i just want to mention anyone that does not know what a gt is or you know has never heard of one either watch that yeti video or look up gt's eating birds because (laughs) (laughs) they will straight up annihilate birds on the surface which is just absolutely it, it goes to show their i guess their f- ferocity i i think though the other thing about that also um in uh i'm trying to think if it was 2011 or 2010 um so what happened with the whole piracy thing is is um, um i was on the boat with uh, two other guests uh, uh, with two other guys and a group of guests and we got just off the boat we got on the chartered plane our season was done we kind of just on our way flying out and this boat of ours got taken by the pirates and uh, it actually it actually took the crew to Somalia and they kept them for 88 days, got half the ransom, sank the boat, huge story. There's actually a book on it too. But um, what then happened is, is most, this is also the reason why most of the islands have actually a land-based operation now because it manages, uh, it, it just, there's a better 
sort of uh, they can look around and after all the assholes a little bit better and the boys something like that happening again. Um, but uh, when we went back to Farquhar, we 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 were on a live, on living on the island, guiding from there, and that's when we randomly found those birds, um, the GTs eating the birds off this island, Gulet Island. And I promise, you, as crazy as that footage is, is probably some of the best footage or the best footage ever filmed of GTs. But um, first time we found it, we had no idea what they were feeding on. I mean, it seemed very obvious that they're eating birds, but at once, like for the first couple of days we couldn't figure out at all because it was just these big explosions and they have all that footage in slow-mo, but when it happens in a split second, it's hard to see what's going on. Yeah. And then eventually, like I had a client, um, uh, he was doing a cast at a GT sitting in this little, like in the current line and he by accident hooked the bird and it flipped over into the water. And then this GT just ran over and instantly smoked the bird, which just showed that that's what they're really looking for. So, yeah, it's it, it's insane how intelligent. Like I said, I don't think we give um, fish enough credit for how smart they are and how they learn and adapt and all that kind of stuff. So definitely pretty wild footage to see. Yeah, no, I'm. <laughs> that kind of brings up a good point uh, with with fish intelligence because I feel like fish sometimes don't get enough credit, and um, and this comes back to me with kind of in my area, whereas comes in the form of like fishing pressure. Uh, like, yeah. You know, after a couple of days of them getting fished, you can tell and they know that where they are doesn't feel that safe anymore. Uh, and I, th- I think sometimes people forget that. De- definitely a hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And uh, I think, I think we kind of frustratingly want to blame it on, on, on a bunch of other stuff, but, yeah, you know, Link, we, it's funny how we always, with all things in nature, try and point the finger at something, but there's four fingers pointing back at us. So, mm-hmm. like, we we definitely have our footprint, and uh, then it just boils down to how we manage it. So, um, I think the guys in the Seychelles and a lot of these lodges now are doing a phenomenal job of managing those fisheries and making sure that they fit for the future. And um, the thing that a lot of people don't understand about these, because I've had a lot of flack on social media when I post like some of those odd looking fish on how you can catch it and you're hurting mother nature and stuff. But like at the end of the day, if those lodges weren't there, those places would either be poached out, commercially fished out by long liners. They wouldn't exist. They, they would just be away. And what a lot of these lodges have done is they've, they've uh, started working with the local communities, got them involved so they can have a future for their families too. And also explain to them that these fish are worth more alive than dead. So, there's a lot more that goes into it than people just look from the outside. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, as fishermen, we probably care the most about the, the fishery being healthy because we want <laughs> to keep doing the thing that we love. Um, yeah. You know, that's one of many reasons. But, you know, it, I think same thing goes for, for hunters and, and what have you. So it's something to think about for sure if, if – uh, if you're thinking, oh man, they're going out there and hurting these fish or whatever, but you know, if there's any advocates for, um, you know, good environmental habits and, and, and healthy fisheries, it's generally the people that are fishermen or hunters. Yes. And, and I mean, the, unfortunately the hunters get a definitely a lot more of a sort of a, a bad name with, because I mean, they end up, we release the fish, but however they usually, when you shoot it, they kill it, which, 
in their cases, a little, sucks a little bit because then they have to defend that too. But yeah, again, if true. people weren't hunting in Africa and all those places, there would be no money to protect those. It's kind of so odd where you have to go get the money to hunt an animal. And a lot of those like big game animals are actually selected uh, after several years. This one is the one that they target. This one is, so it's never really the prime of the, of the pack or uh, whichever it may be. So there's definitely a whole misunderstanding about that whole game too. But we can talk for hours about that too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, let's, let's move on from, um, from the Seychelles. So w- when you're, when you, you know, ended your guiding career there, where did you go to next? So I was fortunate, like I kept on pushing as much as I can to see different places. So while I was in the Seychelles, I managed to get a job um, in Norway um, from a, a, a friend of mine, a South African friend that actually ended up moving to Norway and married the Norwegian girl and the owner of the lodge and, and uh, uh, daughter. So um, I managed to get that job and look uh, and, and guide on that lodge in Norway for Atlantic salmon. And in that same time too, I managed to get a job in Mongolia. So um, what happened is, is my year kind of looked, basically I would go to the Seychelles for three, three to three and a half months. And then I would fly quickly back to South Africa, change the bags, go to Norway, stay there for three, three and a half months, then fly directly to Mongolia, guide there for usually five to six weeks, and then back to the Seychelles. And usually I got back just sort of around Christmas Eve um, and probably do about 300 to 320 days on the water um, a year. So stack them up pretty big, uh, a lot of days. Um, but the nice thing about just at the, all these different locations is it all had their different challenges and uh, different things to learn. So I never really got tired or burnt out of it. I mean, it was just basically, we just kind of moved on with life. I still miss all those places and love all those places. But um, it, it's awesome to get to know all the different fisheries as much as possible. So um, and then also Russia kind of happened, started, uh, did a season in Russia. So just kind of pushed the, push the envelope as much as I could with diversifying my guiding skills. Yeah. That, I mean, <laughs> it's incredibly impressive. And the, the, the fact that you've been just that many places and I know you've, that you've been a lot more, uh, is, is just nothing short of incredible. And, uh, I would love to hear a little more about your Russian experience because I mean, just given what's happening there now, but, um, is it, and to that point, is that where the pic, there's a picture of you holding like a massive tusk? So, so that was in Siberia. So yes, it was in Russia. We were fortunate enough. Um, I guided a, a client of mine, Ilya Shubovich, uh, a Russian guy, um, quite a long time ago in the Seychelles and um, kind of very, very nice guy, befriended him. He usually brought some of his friends and family with on the trips and he um, he ended up buying a a lodge in Russia called the Panoy, which is probably the one of the most well-known Atlantic salmon uh, fisheries in Russia. Um, and he was also part of this whole uh, Atlantic salmon reserve and or, or, or a, 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 a whole conglomerate of different lodges that were lo- doing looking after Atlantic salmon because it's also Russia. So there was like a lot of poaching and all that kind of stuff going on, but they were really looking after the rivers. Um, and the, uh, the lodge that I was actually at was uh, the Karlovka, which is the Atlantic salmon reserve. There's two different lodges there um, and, and just an absolutely amazing scenery. And also 
the the owner there also most of those lodges were eventually owned by Russians, but they were very passionate about Atlantic salmon and nature. They one of the main reasons why those places are so unbelievable. They would uh, even the lodges, the way that the lodge was built, was built at zero impact. So it was all built on wooden stilts, and so the the ground below would only be damaged where they have these wooden pillars in, and very untouched, amazing, amazing locations. Um, however, so how I managed to go to Siberia was um, Ilya, the guy that owns Benoit, um, invited myself and Keith to go because at that stage I'd guided for um, Simon quite a bit in Mongolia, so I had a bit of experience and um, managed to get invited on this two week, it was two and a half week sort of exploratory trip of this, uh, like I think we did 10 different tributaries on the Lena River. Um, so we were kind of looking for, originally we were actually looking for a fish called the Nelma, which is kind of the Russian sea, sea fish, the one that you catch in Alaska. It's like, I think it's the biggest family of the whitefish. Mm-hmm. So that's originally what we kind of went to go looking look for, but I mean, we had very little success. We eventually had one evening where we suddenly found a few rolling around and we ended up catching a couple. Um, but uh, within that same river, we actually found a the a plethora of big time and and that's also how we and at that same river we also also um one of the guys that went with he he kind of walked off to go do his business in the bush or wherever it's on the tundra and uh came back and the the tusk was just lying on the riverbank just kind of picked it up it was wide open so you can just imagine how many people have been there so yeah very insane experience yeah I mean, Russia is not a, a place in my mind where I think, oh, man, I'd love to go there and go fishing. <laughs> no, for sure. And, you know, it's kind of, it's so sad that all of this stuff going on in the world right now, because I would say the majority, 99% of Russian friends and people that I've gotten to know and meet through all the different trips and guides, and even there's also a fantastic operation in Kamchatka um, for for these giant trout that eat um eat uh, mouse patterns and um, oh just this it's a phenomenal phenomenal fisheries and people but just so sad because nobody really knows the future of um, being being able to run those those outfitting businesses the guides probably don't have much of a job um, so it, it's very sad but there's some epic stuff in Russia for sure yeah that I yeah I guess that was my point I just you know I never th- I never thought that there was extremely good fishing in Russia which is, it's so interesting to think about, but it makes sense. I mean, there's a lot of river systems and then I always, I always find it really fascinating to look at Russia on Google maps and just how much of it is just wilderness. Oh yeah. There's there's a lot of stuff that's just kind of, I mean, maybe a lot of it's also uninhabitable. Like, I mean, if you look at um, we were in kind of the Arctic Circle, as I kind of remember it correct, correctly, like almost like way up north um, where we went to, and it just seemed impossible to live there. However, I mean, there were um, uh, there were some like super hardcore Russian uh, guys that had uh, they they very looked very similar to Mongo like a like like Mongolian, mm-hmm. um, and they were these herdsmen that were looking after reindeer. So these. It's just these things that you couldn't even imagine seeing in all these different places and how people survive that. One of the main reasons why I've really appreciated more than anything now when I go on trips is just kind of the different cultures and the stuff you see. And, um, you know, living in the U.S. now, it is as comfortable 
as <laughs> anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, so you just kind of experience, and that's, that's kind of one reason why really also kind of, I know it's not always financially possible, but that helps a lot to see the world and see other people and cultures. Yeah, it does. I, I, I completely agree with you. Um, so after, after Russia, it, well, well, actually, what were you fishing for in Mongolia? So Mongolia, we were also guiding for Taiman. I think that's kind of what they most well known for uh, is the river wolf or the Taiman. Um, so the, the Taiman you get in Siberia, so you actually catch Taiman, which is uh, known as the largest salmonoid in the world. So they grow up to historically, there's uh, records of them growing to 200 pounds. Um, this guy, Ilya, wow. that I went with to Siberia, uh, currently holds the majority of the fly called world record. Um, time and um, he fishes a river called the Tugur River, where they, I mean, he's caught them 50 kilos, so 120 plus pounds. He's caught them on fly. Um, in Mongolia, it's a different species um, uh, of time. And uh, so you get the Hucha I mean, there's a whole array of them, but I wouldn't say necessarily they grow as big. I mean, we've, we've caught them up to 60, around 60 plus inches. Um, they look a little bit more slender, but definitely have a different diet because the ones on the Tugur River, they basically stock themselves up on eating salmon, which come up the river, whereas the one in Mongolia, they eat basically anything that's available there. There's a fish called the Lenok, which is kind of like this prehistoric looking trout. There's grayling. Um, they eat groundhogs, squirrels, whatever crosses the river. Um, they've, yeah. <laughs> they've been known to eat. Like, I mean, usually when we... When we get our clients in Mongolia the first time, we're like, okay, guys, we're going to put on some squirrel patterns and we're going to put on this. You know, you're going to you're playing a different game for trout. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't say I've ever tied a squirrel pattern. Um, <laughs> but I might want to try now. Uh, that's. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. And like, I mean, probably one of my most fondest, my fondest memories in, in Mongolia was I guided this extremely good client of mine, Paul Hannafeld. And, he uh, he had he had fished for time and for quite a few times uh, in Mongolia, and he did go to Siberia also. And this one year, this last year that I fished, that I guided them, is he, he hooked a time and that was thirty inches. And we know this because we actually managed to get this fish back. But like um, mid fight, this thing got swallowed whole by another time, and um, wow. and we know this because we saw the other time, and he literally swallowed this fish to the point where just a little bit of the tip of the back fin was sticking out. And um, we kind of made a whole plan. I was like, I'm going to drop the boat below him. We're going to try and keep it in his like in his throat and in his stomach because yeah. their mouth is almost um, their teeth is almost shaped like an anaconda. So it's, the teeth are facing backwards, so he yeah. can grip it really hard. And then um, we fought it. Eventually, broke the rod, um, got below us, and it just kind of yanked the the, the fish out of its mouth. And we measured it at 30 inches. So whatever that one was, it was much larger. So <laughs> yeah, everything so. is great. Oh yeah. my gosh. I'm going to have to look up like half of the fish that you have been talking <laughs> about because I can't say I know exactly what that fish looks like, but that's, uh, that's incredible. That's, that's really a great story. Um, yeah. So, okay. So, um, you know, after you were spending part of your time in the Seychelles, part of your time in Russia, part of your time in, Mon in Mongolia, at what point did you get to, Okay, I'm going to move to Texas. Um, so, I mean, it's it kind of just all... So, I, I met my wife very early on, like a, quite a long time ago. And uh, bless her, she's 
absolutely awesome and as like you know i always laugh when some of the guys arrive on the islands and i'm like uh, they kind of the younger guys and you train them and like oh no my wife my girlfriend is super happy with me doing this and this will work it's not it's fine she says it's okay with me being away for nine ten months a year i'm like okay we'll see how that pans out but uh, my <laughs> wife was really really awesome and um, uh, she also eventually came to some of the lodges with me to norway and to russia um, so that kind of was really nice to go to those places with her. And, um, uh, we kind of decided early on, I mean, we love South Africa, but we kind of just wanted to see if we can build ourselves a little bit of a better future from a lifestyle point of view. And, um, for us and, and we, you know, the American dream is people know about it in other places in the world. And we kind of, um, had some opportunities, um, originally actually met a guy called Neville Osmond, which is a South African guy, but he's the owner of Thomas and Thomas Flyrock. Okay. And he um, he managed to help us get across. Um, he helped us uh, sort of navigate the visa and all that kind of stuff, and managed to get a good visa and got a um, got a green card at the end of the day. Um, and then uh, we were living in Massachusetts at the time because I was helping out at Thomas Thomas a bit. But you know, the first snow dropped, and we were like, "Nope, not for us." <laughs> um, and um, I don't blame me. I got in. Yeah, yeah. So we got. Um, I got. I was lucky to get invited by. Um, a friend of mine, Joe Cooley from Yeti, to come and uh, to Austin for a fly fishing film to event um, that Yeti was also supporting, and uh, uh, really, really enjoyed it. They kind of showed me around and loved it. And uh, funnily enough, at the time, I uh, a couple months later, um, I had a trip uh, to Baja to fish for roosterfish, and my wife at the same time flew over to Austin, had a look at two homes, and um, and kind of put an offer into one of the homes and. And I, I never even saw it until the day we moved in. So um, wow. it was pretty wild. But uh, yeah, we we are extremely happy where we are now. And uh, and that's kind of how also through Yeti and some of the other ambassadors like JT, um, where I managed to got to know the Texas coast and, and what's around and uh, really told them I'd love to be a full-time guide on the Texas coast. Interesting. Yeah, that's... Uh, man. I'm glad you ended up there because it sounds like you like it. How do you, do you like the, the fishery around there? I mean, I know that, I know that y'all get jacks sometimes, uh, or at least for a portion of the year, but other than that, is it mainly just redfish? Um, so I would say our bread and butter is redfish. Um, however, I mean, there are some, some really cool stuff that happens on the Texas coast. Um, I mean, they, um, yeah, the, like the classic Texas shallow water red fishing is probably, I'd say, uh, 80% of the game. But then, um, once the jacks start coming in, that completely changes my season because that's pretty much what I target from like April through to, um, to like early November. Um, and, uh, it's, it's kind of all still seasonal dependent. It changes a little bit, but the jacks that we get in are really big. Um, we do get some runs. It, it's hard to just like really say exactly what times these all happen, but, we can catch bull reds, two really, really big ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, shit, I mean, I've caught them up to like 52 inches on the Texas coast, yeah. much larger than anything I've caught in Louisiana. And yeah. then uh, we got those big black drum. We got the sheepies, and we got we got we got somewhat of a tarpon fishery. Um, it's uh, it's something that's going to be hard to ever really uh, be an expert on, but. Um, it can be pretty crazy. Once they come through on the golf side with us, they are running high, happy, and hungry. <laughs> so they, I just purely just fish them with my GT flies, and that's kind of what they what they snack on. So it's nothing like the 
Florida top. They could they remind me a lot of the African um, African top, and that we catch on the west coast of Africa. Very just just happy fish. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, and so you're doing you're doing your own guide business out of Texas, but you're also doing, uh, and this is definitely something I wanted to talk about. You're you're doing a lot of, um, I guess, would you call them like hosted trips? Yes, yeah. So, uh, so that's basically, um, uh, I would say the majority of the trips I do now, like some of the ones, like we did one in Oman uh, last year, November, which was kind of, it was more of a film project, but also kind of like an exploratory, semi-exploratory. It's hard to kind of really explore place, places these days with Google Earth and all everything that's available. So I think very few places still left to be kind of really discovered. But um, uh, yeah, so most of the trips I would say is like a hosted trips where where what I do, I do all my hosted trips with Yellow Dog. So basically, um, I would find a, a prime week at a location, and then uh, and then just kind of talk to the majority of my clients if they're interested. And then Yellow Dog kind of helps me with all the other uh, sort of the uh, administrational side of stuff, and um, so that kind of makes it easy for me to go see other places too and spend time with with clients. And yeah, it's re- it's really cool. Have you been to? Um have you been to Argentina yet to fish for the Golden Dorado? Yes, yeah. So um, the majority of the trips I did for Golden Dorado um, is in Tamani in, in Bolivia. And then um, I did some Dorado fishing in Argentina, sort of northern Argentina on, on that uh, the marsh area. I think, um, oh, I can't remember the lodge's name, um, uh, Pira Lodge. Um, we kind of did this trip where we did the, um, Golden Dorado, which is such a unique fishery because it's these big, this big marsh that you fish for the Dorado. And then we went all the way south and we went to go fish for um, sea run brown trout. And then I also went to Jurassic Lake for those gigantic trout there, which is silly. It's just kind of it's, it's mind-blowing the size of trout and the consistency of that place too. So I, I kind of always tell like South America is in, in, a, in its whole is still – one of the prettiest, awesome, a lot of fishing potential places in the world. Really, really amazing. The The Golden Dorado stuff is, is interesting to me because it looks like, and I've never been, um, but it looks like you can, you can catch them from like a polling skiff. And it also looks like people catch them in like rivers where they would, where they would like, they were fishing for, you know, river trout. A hundred percent. Yeah. So the Bolivia, um, I would say it's more of the sort of crystal clear river stuff where, I mean, you're fishing for these aggressive Dorado. And like I say, for a Dorado, there's nothing too small for them to, um, to like nothing too big for them to eat. I mean, we've had Dorado that are like 15 pounds that'll try and eat a 10, 15 pound Dorado itself, <laughs> just wedged like a T-bone. So they, that's the one cool thing. And you can't imagine like even 40 pound Dorado sitting in these small little river creeks um, where you've got this dense jungle and you've got jaguar tracks everywhere and you've got this these parrots. It, it literally sounds like Jurassic Park when you walk around there. <laughs> um, and then uh, and then like the Argentina style, the northern Argentina is a completely different. Like you said, where you're on a skiff, you're skating mouse patterns across the surface, um, and you're fishing for Dorado there. That's just yeah, it's 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 completely different, unique uh, scenery, separate two separate fisheries. Interesting. So, is the stuff in northern Argentina where you're where you're on the polling skiff? Is that is it mainly sight fishing? 
Um, some of it, uh, it's depending on what the marsh looks like and how uh, how much like uh, the water levels are. Um, I would say we did less. Uh, the the sight fishing we do more frequently in Bolivia. Um, in Argentina, there are some. Uh, the the first time that I went there, or the only time that I went there, um, uh, there something happened. There wasn't a lot of dorado coming up the river at one stage or up that marsh anymore, but it's increased and gotten better and better. There's something that happened, but like now the guys have found these spots that I've spoken to and seen where they go to these little like um, little creeks and stuff in the marsh and stuff where they go up and literally they can sight fish them on mouse bats and sitting in the tail out of a little creek and um, very, very cool. So I think that's definitely a possibility. It wasn't as much when we were there, but that's definitely also happening there. That's really cool. And the, in the stuff that's in um, when you're fishing in like, the rivers like you would for trout it, that looks like it's a lot of sight fishing or am i am i wrong yeah and i mean you can't imagine i said this to somebody this weekend is, is you would see a 20 plus pound golden dorado uh you would think in a picture that that thing should be so easy to see in crystal clear water but they've got this kind of a greenish uh, tinge to the back and um again my biggest dorado ever caught i was um, usually on a hosted trip i don't really fish much but um in Bolivia, the specific place, I usually have one day where I go with the lodge manager and we kind of hike up as far as we can and we fish we fish up as high as we can. Usually we only end up fishing for an hour or two with, because we're hiking four hours there and four mm-hmm. hours back. But um, but um, I we <laughs> it's so funny. We've got all this kit on. We've got wading boots, sunglasses, hats, buffs, all this stuff. And you've got two indigenous guys that go with you. They've got no shoes, no glasses, no hats. They just kind of walk shirt, pants. And this guy, this one guy, he only had one eye, spotted a Dorado of 40 pounds behind me, like six feet behind me that I didn't even see. So (laughs) he was the main reason that I ended up catching the biggest Dorado I had out there, seeing it with one eye, no sunglasses. But they can be very tricky to see, as as crystal clear as that water seemed. But I mean, that's, again, Mother Nature. They can just blend into anything. You would think you'd you'd see a line easily and in the in the bush but they can hide away yeah yeah i believe it i believe it um it, so uh moving to another species that i know you've targeted uh before and i'm probably going to butcher the name of this uh Arapima, is that right no that's right Arapima, yeah yeah um ah. you gotta tell me about those things those are they look like sea monsters or river monsters <laughs> if you will yeah, no, I mean, they, they, to me, I kind of see them as a prehistoric looking, uh, like a, a alligator gar slash tarpon, yeah. uh, with just yeah. a little bit more color to it. Um, they have this really sort of, uh, I mean, it's a prehistoric looking head, just super hard. It's like they've got like this, uh, um, uh, like a tank almost, uh, and just the scales are really thick. And, um, uh, Arapaima, I believe it might be a, a higher percentage, but I think 70% of their oxygen comes from the air. So they usually have to come up for air every, uh, every, uh, 10, 15 minutes. Um, and they've got this very unique, uh, lung system or like with a system that almost looks like a lung where they can change that, uh, into oxygen for their body. So it's very unique fish. And the nice thing is they can grow up to 400 pounds. So, um, it's uh it's super fun to catch it i wouldn't say it's definitely everybody's cup of tea because a lot of the fishing like if you fish for them in guyana 
Um, you're fishing a lot of the times at kind of rolling or you're fishing bubbles, um, fish in these ponds um, that you hike up to. Um, whereas in, in Brazil at this Pirarucu place that I usually go to, um, there is, you've got like this, this sort of a river, that uh, the Amazon River, and then it has these like different ponds and, and lakes that it runs right next to it that you also fish, um, that you access by boat. And um, you basically just fishing with between a super high density of, of arapaima. And uh, I think a lot of the times we're still kind of figuring out what the bite, because it's, it's weird. Like some days you'll go through a few hours and not get a single bite and they're all around you. And then suddenly everybody gets a bite. So it's like this window. And I don't know how it correlates with what um, exactly, you know, we, we always try and find a reason. Um, but then the the cool thing about them is they're not a super aggressive, so they don't go and run and chase a fly down and eat it, but they've got this zone around their head where a specific thing comes close to their head and they I think they can create something like a seven liter like a vortex, like a suction <laughs> into their mouth and they just suck everything that's in front of it in. So you're you're literally when you hook up to one, your whole rod will shake and then you just have to strip set or like that one friend of mine, Raphael, said, just jujitsu set that thing as hard as you possibly can, and then you just buckle up. Golly. They, they, they do kind of remind me of tarpon, just the way that, I don't know why. I guess it's the, the fact that they kind of look like dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, that, and that head shake, and it's very, very similar. It's, um, it's, a, it's a super, super unique fish, and um, they actually grow, you know, they, I think they've done quite a, uh, especially in Guyana, they've been doing a lot of studies on them and they, they grow insanely quick. Um, I've, since I've been doing a little bit more and people seen it on social media, I've uh, actually had a lot of people send me messages on that. They're seeing them in Florida and catching them in Florida somewhere. And that could be a problem because they are very effective at feeding and they grow extremely quick. Um, so, uh, that could get interesting. Uh, uh, over time, depending on what happens out there. But um, yeah, it, I mean, it's again, it's one of those epitome of jungle fish. I mean, since a very early age, and I'm sure most people, when they think of Amazon, they just think of all the weird things that are in the jungle and in the water. And, um, so very cool place. Yeah. Yeah, the Amazon scares me. <laughs> I'm going to be <laughs> completely honest. It is a place that I feel like you could just catch something that you don't want, uh, not not on a fishing rod by you know, this is what I mean, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's some some of the, when we filmed something um, uh, in uh, Bolivia, uh, one of my friends, I mean, there's bot flies around, which is kind of the horrific, gross thing that you can kind of think about. Um, I, I mean, I've gotten some stuff, but nothing, touch wood, nothing like that, what's that show, the what, alien inside me or something, is <laughs> gross bugs that live inside people. Yeah. So nothing like that. I would say that I, I would definitely, uh, maybe because I grew up around sharks, I think I would rather swim across shark-infested waters than ar- across the Amazon not knowing what's in there. I think that, I'm, I'm with you on that. That kind of freaks me out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Amazon just is uh, a crazy, it, I've never been there. But it just seems from all the videos I've seen and from like the the Planet Earth episodes I've seen, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to go there. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so I guess as we're kind of um, wrapping this up just a little bit, if there is, you, you've been everywhere for the most part. <laughs> um, is where is what is left 
like what is on the horizon for you as as a place that you really want to go in in a species that you want to target? Um, you know, like I mean, I I said <laughs> somebody the other day too at this uh, event that I was speaker at. I just said to them like I'm definitely a fish slut, so I'll catch anything that swims <laughs> if there's a possibility of catching it. I'll definitely want to go target it. Um, I I do really really like um, uh, still not being biased, being South African. I, there's a lot of African stuff that I would still love to see. There's a, a few friends of mine that's been working on this place catching Goliath tigerfish on fly. So, I mean, this is a, that crazy looking tigerfish just grows up to a hundred pounds oh with goodness. gigantic teeth. the The problem with them is is that they frequent very large bodies of water or rivers, and because they're such a absolute alpha predator that you know you you don't really find a lot of big ones in a specific it's kind of same as timon um timon fishing is tough you don't catch a lot of they usually find a lot of big timon in a specific area just because they dominate so well so that that's been uh something that i'd still love to go do um and uh so that's up there i mean strangely enough this sounds but i haven't fished alaska or um canada there's a place that we wanted to go called high arctic lodge um, it doesn't technically really, they don't really take people there anymore, but this place where you catch these gigantic char and, um, and lake, lake trout. So, um, you know, the bucket list still stays, Australia is still so, um, also such a, a great frontier for saltwater fly, for saltwater fishing, and they look after their fisheries really well. So there's New Zealand where you can catch these, uh, we call them yellowtail. I don't know if in the US they call them kingfish. Um, it's part of the Amajack family where you can catch them in New Zealand on the flat swimming behind stingrays like GTs do. Um, yeah, so so I still have a, a good amount of stuff. And, you know, I mean, I've also kind of built a lot of my stuff around filmmaking and kind of showcasing a lot of these places. And uh, since, I mean, guiding, I've, you know, spending a lot of time on the water, I've always seen it as an opportunity to try and, try and make people see something that they more than likely will never, ever see um or just those because every single fishing moment separate doesn't matter even if you go to a place 20 times it could be different 20 different times so i mean i i still that's what i love about fly fishing and fishing it's just like i mean i still actually have to catch a little rio cichlid that lives here and that's also indigenous so um i definitely have a lot on my bucket list still yeah sounds like it well you got plenty of time to do it Definitely. So hopefully, yeah, we just have to have to uh, appreciate. There's been some some wild thing that's happened in in the travels that I haven't elaborated much on in this world that might might question some people with regards to the traveling. But you know, going to some of these crazy third world countries, things happen and go wrong, and uh, it is what it is. As long as you can just make the most of life. That's right. That's right. And as far as your filmmaking is concerned, do you have any um, films that you're working on currently? Um, so we currently have the Jack uh, Jack's film on the International Flashing Film Tour. And then there's another film called Four of a Kind that uh, Costa and a friend of mine, Patrick Ray from Livid Film, did um, uh, on uh, this, these four different species of film. And that it is insane, really insanely well done. Um, and then we definitely kind of working on projects a little closer to home. You know, unfortunately, um, again, looking on social media, it kind of probably seems like I'm a trust fund baby. So, um, and but I've been called that many, many times. Um, however, like 
none of the stuff I would have been able to do without the work that not a lot of people see in the background. But um, um, so we wanted to kind of, instead of selling people, because a lot of people like get a little bit upset, like if we do a movie on the Seychelles and it's like this expensive trip and we can't go on there. But the, the main mission with a lot of the filmmaking is just to kind of, the same as Nat Geo, it's really kind of to show people what's out there and not try and make them upset about not being able to go. Sure. So, um, so that's kind of the plan, but we definitely wanting to do a few more stuff closer to home in the U.S. Um, just again, to see what people have on the doorstep. That's one of the main reasons for the Jack film. So we'll, we'll definitely focus on a few of those. And then, um, yeah, definitely have a f- maybe a few sort of uh, different locations in the world in the pipeline. Awesome. Well, we'll, we'll be on the lookout. And, but as far as the, the films that you have currently, how do you, what is the best way for people to find them and check them out? Um, so I think that, well, the IF4, the International Flushing Film Tour, is running already. That's been already gone, going on since uh, uh, since January. So um, you can kind of just go on their social media, on their website, to see where the, where the closest tour is events, because most of them kind of uh, go to movie cinemas or to events, and then it's showcased over there. Um, and, and once the, the, the kind of the time frame and the film tour is done for the year, then, uh, we will kind of just put it live up on the internet, but that kind of takes a little bit of time. So if you wanted to see it anytime soon, you'd have to go to the international flushing film tour. Excuse me. And then I think they, um, they starting the, um, F3T, uh, the flushing film tour is starting, um, in the next couple of weeks. I think the first show is somewhere in Montana. Um, uh, um, usually it started in Missoula, but um, then it kind of travels around the U.S. too. Um, so you can definitely check out the Flushing Film Tour's website for where you can kind of see these different films. And there's some really good other films on the Film Tour too. On all, both the different Film Tours, there's some really cool films. Got it. Good to know. Um, well, yeah. if you want to, uh, Jacka's Instagram, I believe, is Captain Jack, Captain Jack Productions, I believe. Is that right? Yes, that, that's correct. Yeah. And then yeah. if um, if someone wanted to reach out to you to to book a trip in Texas or get together with you and go on one of your uh, expedition trips, how do they find you that way? Um, usually, uh, I I would usually say the best would be my email because usually when somebody messages me on social media, which sometimes if it takes me a little bit of time to get back with a message just remember that I don't close out a message until I've responded to it. So sometimes it takes a couple of weeks, but um, I'll never try and delete the message until I've answered it. Um, so even if you send me a message on social media, I'll respond to that on just sending me an email. But um, anybody can email me on, on Yaku, J-A-K-O, at captainjackproductions.com. And, uh, and then I also I keep emails in my inbox until I've responded to them. Uh, and then, yeah, we can... And, and also any other questions anybody might have, I always try and try and see if I can help with any kind of info, whether or not somebody does something with myself or goes on another trip and they might have questions on fishing somewhere else in the world. I'm happy to help in any way I can. Awesome. Well, Jacka, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on. I, I had a thoroughly enjoyed having this conversation with you and we hope to have you on again sometime in the future. Awesome. Really appreciate it, Cameron. And uh, yeah, I hope we get out on the water together someday in the near future. I'm in. You let me know. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) All right, man. Thank you.